You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Good morning. Today we're going to continue our conversation of an essay by uh, Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson on prayer. Um, this uh, article is uh, on a blog called JesusJazzBuddhism.org. What that means, uh, I'll leave to your uh, exploration. Um, but Rabbi Artson has been talking about prayer, and we've been discussing in our time together um, an approach to prayer uh, that is uh, uh, coherent with a, a particular theology uh, known as process theology. Um, and the reason that he's doing this is that um, the assumption is that our prayer and our theology, meaning our, our prayer and our understanding of God, um, don't always align. Sometimes we pray things that we don't really believe, and sometimes we believe things that we don't really pray, that we don't really pray. In other words, uh, there are many people who uh, um, treat prayer uh, like they're, you know, rubbing a, a magic lantern and making a wish uh, with a genie. Um, but if they, uh, but if you ask them to uh, discuss their understanding of God, um, they actually wouldn't really believe in that God. Um, and uh, it turns out that uh, that that one, most of us don't really believe in that God. Um, we may want that God personally, but it's not really the God the God we believe um, uh, that operates uh, in in that way for all of humanity. Um, and also um, that that God uh, can't uh, really exist uh, for uh, for a number of reasons, um, which creates a disconnect between our prayer and our theology. And if that's not really um, who God is or what God is, um, then what's the point of praying? That's the challenge. Uh, and, uh, and so Rabbi Artsin is going to uh, discuss uh, uh, this different approach to prayer um, in three different kinds of prayer contexts. The first is spontaneous prayer, uh, meaning uh, just you know those prayers that, uh, that, that we offer from, from our heart uh, in times of pain, in times of joy. Uh, and then also uh, uh, formal liturgical prayer, which is a prayer that uh, most Jews are, uh, are, are most familiar with. Uh, and then uh, a third kind of prayer, um, which, uh, which, which is similar to the first kind, um, but is specific to praying for uh, someone's healing. What do we do when we pray for somebody to get better who is ill? Okay, so those three categories. Um, and... So we're in the second page of the essay, uh, as it's printed out, and he asks it very uh, basically. What are we doing when we pray? At the simplest level, with spontaneous prayer or wordless prayer, we recenter ourselves with God at the core. When I was a child, I used to run my magnet through the soil in an abandoned field near my home. The magnet would attract the iron fillings in the earth, and those fillings would align themselves with the magnet as it passed by. With God as our magnet, prayer allows us to orient ourselves around optimal love, justice, experience, compassion. In other words, when we pray, we become like those iron fillings. When we 
offer spontaneous expressions of of prayer. Um, what uh, what we're trying to do is recenter ourselves um, around. God and here Rabbi Artzen um, understands God as the ultimate embodiment of a certain cluster of values of justice, love, goodness, compassion, and when we pray, uh, what we're what we're really trying to do um, is to try to realign ourselves with those values, to reconnect ourselves. Um, with those values. And I think that that's especially poignant uh, for uh, wordless prayer. He says spontaneous or wordless prayer, but I think especially wordless prayer, meditation, um, is, uh, is, is really designed to center ourselves in that way. Um, and there are certain kinds of spontaneous prayer that does too, and we'll get to uh, um, uh, the spontaneous prayer for healing um, a little bit later. We elevate our own sense of what is possible the significance of our choices and our capacity to make a difference. Since God works with the world as it is, that, re, that new, renewed energy and determination is now available for God's wondrous work. We don't turn to God as magician and rule-breaker. God works with, in, and through creation as it is. But God is persistently, tirelessly luring creation toward its optimal expression, greater love, greater justice, greater engagement. Rather than breaking the rules, our praying opens us to renewed expression of that lure and fresh zeal for its advance. This is a very important point uh, that, uh, that Rabbi Artson is making here. Um, the process theologians don't believe that God can break the rules of nature. <clears throat> Now, I had a very spirited conversation with uh, my students in the, in the Tisch this morning um, about this. Um, the recorder wasn't working, so um, utilizing the, uh, um, uh, the computer afterward, and so I don't have the live audience in front of me. But needless to say, we had a very spirited conversation about this um, assertion about the nature of God, that God can't break the rules of nature. That God can't break the rules of nature. In other words, we can't turn to God and pray for something that is not physically possible, that's not naturally possible. Right? We can't pray to God for the end of death right? um, and expect uh, the, uh, an affirmative response for that. But what we can do is, is turn to God as, a, as that magnet, as that lure, as a, 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 a directional source, a, a, a compass, if you will, a light ahead that points us in the right direction, uh, that points us toward uh, greater love, greater justice, greater engagement, right? And so when we pray, what we ought to be thinking about is not, can I pray for something that God can do for me, but can I pray for a God that can lure me to be the best of what I'm able to be? And that brings us to uh, the second kind of prayer, which is uh, formal, communal, liturgical prayer. And Rabbi Aretin, uh phrases this a little bit cynically, please, please rise, please be seated, please rise, please be seated. Often the book we use is very old. The Siddur, the Jewish prayer book, contains prayers that range in age from thousands to hundreds of years old. How does reading someone else's words open us to a more attentive responsiveness to God's lure. 
Wouldn't we commune better if we prayed spontaneously and from the heart? Right? This is one of the major challenges that many Jews have with prayer. All of the prayers are already written out for you. And how do you... Uh, how do you uh, connect with with um, with prayers? How do you how do you um, uh, what what are you supposed to do reading somebody else's words? How do you follow the lure, even if you look at prayer that way by following someone else's words? So this is one of the major challenges, and I, I suspect that uh, that that Christians, Muslims, people of other faith traditions have this challenge as well. When you're praying, you're not praying your words; you're praying some old dead guy's words uh, from a thousand years ago. And why, why, why are you doing that? What's the point? Wouldn't it be better to just pray what you felt? Let's skip a paragraph because he just gives a, a, a few examples here from the Bible of the fact that the, that the Torah really, um, uh, the rest of the, the Hebrew Bible, uh, when it talks about prayer, most of the time it's talking about spontaneous outpourings of prayer, which is not the model of the prayer that, uh, that the Jewish tradition ultimately adopted. He says, the choice isn't limited to the dichotomy of one or the other, either spontaneous outpouring or scripted liturgy. It's not like like one is good and one is bad. You need one, you don't need the other. Everton's going to suggest that you need both. And we talked a little bit about what what spontaneous prayer is supposed to do. What about liturgical prayer? We will be best prepared for the unscripted exclamation if we devote the discipline to regular schedule of prayer. And the resonance of that scripted communal recitation will be that much richer because the trails blazed by unscripted moments of crying out in anguish, need, or gratitude. In other words, regular scripted prayer, formal prayer, enables us to have spontaneous outpourings of prayer later on. We know the language, we know the rhythms, we know the structures, we have a context for uh, what we want to get out of prayer. And so when it's time to jump for joy or to or our hearts are broken and we need to know what to say or how to say it or when to say it in, 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 in the right way, in the way that uh, can be heard by our hearts in the way that can be heard by the universe, having regularly engaged in scripted prayer will have helped uh, blaze that pathway. On the other hand, our regular scripted prayer will be informed, infused, enlivened if we have a prayer life that exists outside those scripted prayer moments. If all you do and your entire context for prayer is sitting in synagogue, standing up, sitting down, standing up, sitting down, reading out of the book, chances are that you're not getting as much out of those prayer experiences as you would if you supplemented them with a regular practice of personal spontaneous prayer. Liturgical prayer, then, is like reading a script. A great actor will allow the script to provide the content and context for their own personality as the character. The actor becomes the character portrayed in the script, feels the character's feelings, the motivations and anxieties and aspirations that shape the character's personality. 
so too the person at prayer becomes the righteous questing soul portrayed in the prayer book. That's an amazing idea, right? It's almost like the Stanislavski method of prayer. Right? You're becoming the script in prayer. The prayer describes a pious person, and in reading and reading and reciting that script, you assimilate the piety of the script. The prayer talks about the need for justice and compassion and mercy and kindness and goodness, and over time you assimilate those values into the core of, the be- of your being. The, the prayer describes the ideal person, and through constantly reminding ourselves of that ideal, we become that person. It's method acting. Right? You're becoming the script. Right? And also, right, um, it enables us to uh, the, the, the actor who is most comfortable with the character. The actor who's really become the character, that's the actor who can ad-lib. And you still believe that they're the character. You still believe that, uh, um, uh, that, uh, that Robert De Niro is Travis Bickle, right? Um, even when he's not reading the lines of the script because he's become that character in the film, right? And similarly, right, if we have imbibed and infused ourselves with the personality and character of the values in the prayer book, when we go to an unscripted moment, we will actually be that person. We make ourselves into vessels to be sculpted by the values, aspirations, and memories provided by the Sidor, Rabbi Hartson says. And in emptying ourselves to be so filled, we express ourselves not as discontinuous and solitary moderns, but as instantiations of Claw Yisrael, children of Israel at one with our Maker. For the duration of our praying, those words become our words. Those sentiments become our yearning. But it's also true that some of the best actors um, have been trained in the skills of improv. right? In order to know how to shift into character and adapt to the scene and roll with the punches and, uh, and, and really uh, um, play off of, of the needs of other actors, right? Um, improv is a great training ground, right? So it also works the other direction as well. A scripted prayer needs spontaneous training, right? So we need both things. We expand beyond the confines of our own limited lives, the constrictions of our own age and place, and enter into a flowing stream of ancient and timely tradition. Such praying can make us more than we are alone. We grow to include our people around the world and across the ages, and through that expansive sense of Israel, we take on concern for all humanity and serve as stewards for all creation. In other words, prayer, scripted prayer, adds another dimension. It takes us out of the confines of our self, our time and place, and places us in a broader context of who we truly are. We are not the events that we experience ourselves as being, the entities that we experience ourselves as being. We are part of the ongoing flow of space and time. And when we read the words of the Siddur, when we speak the words of our ancestors and intone the words that our descendants are going to speak, we become part of that eternity. And when we become part of that eternity, we become more committed 
to the values embodied by that eternity. Justice, compassion, goodness, mercy. And so prayer in, context, in, in connecting us with the truth, the reality of all that is, it reminds us that we are more than the embodied moment of our lives and that we serve more than the embodied moment of our lives. We're connected to the rest of humanity. We're connected to the rest of creation. We have a responsibility to our ancestors. We have a responsibility to our descendants because in a certain sense, we are them. And so praying plugs us into that reality and reminds us of our role in that great drama. And that process view brings us to this next part of, uh, of, of Rabbi Artson's discussion, which is the prayer of um, a petition for someone who is ill. When we pray for someone else, a form of intercessory prayer, a prayer for healing or for the diminution, diminution of pain, what are we doing? Right, since we've abandoned the notion of God as magician and prayer as insurance policy, what does it mean for us to pray for someone's recovery? Right, and here, we come back to this notion that though we experience ourselves as entities, static, radically separate from everything around us, what process reminds us is that we are connected to everyone else on every level of existence that we are a flow of energy interwoven into the fabric of the cosmos and not just the static you or me. And process thinking highlights the reality that we are not solid, solitary substances, but rather relating patterns of energy that weave our interactions with each other to the very fabric of our becoming. The foods we eat and the music we dance weaves our neurons uniquely and constitute our muscle and bone, as do the people we love and the faces we learn to recognize. Each of us are dynamic composites of everyone we've known, every place we've been, and expanding circles of family, community, species, and planet. We are not radically separate from everything else. Everything in life, everything in existence is connected to everything. I am interwoven into the fabric of you. The fact that you're listening to this podcast is changing your biology. And the fact that I know that you're listening to this podcast and it's informing what I'm teaching is changing my biology. We are connected even though we are miles and miles apart. One thing prayer cannot do is vanquish mortality. All things come into being, flourish, decline, and expire. All becomings end. Which is sort of true. There is an aspect of our becoming that ends. But I think if we push the process theology a little bit further, the truth is that we never really die. We die on a certain level. Right, our, uh, we, we have a certain uh, aspect of us that is mortal. Our matter goes back into the earth and decomposes. Right? The event that we experience as you and me, that ends. But our energy is neither created nor destroyed. And the, uh, um, I heard a Buddhist saying that when a person dies, uh, 
There are, um, they, when they were alive, they might have been alive on 50 different levels or 50 different ways. And when they die, they're alive in 49 different ways. Right? And I think that that is actually a, a profound insight here. Um, in the same way that we are constant flows and patterns of interwoven energy, we, we, we never fully die. But in a physical sense, in a biological sense, we, we are mortal. Right? Our, our bodies will expire, will decompose, right? which means that we will get sick and we will die and no prayer is going to change that ultimately. Right? To pray for health and intend that a person should not die, should never die, is vain prayer. It is not the way of the world. Indeed, prayer cannot eliminate illness. Right? That's uh, an, an aspect of this, that, that God is not a rule breaker. God can't change the fact that we're going to get sick. God can't change the fact that we're going to die. And it's not won't, it's can't. Woven into the fabric of life are the viruses and bacteria that share our bodies and form the communities that we are. They sustain us, and they feed on us. And the rhythm of life and dying includes copious expanses of sickness. To pray for all the removal of all illness is to pray for delusion. This too is vain prayer. We can't pray for the end of death. So what are we doing? What are we doing when we pray for someone to heal? Remember that God works in, with, and through us. Rabbi Artson adds that as we lift up another in our prayer, when we bring up somebody in our minds, when we think of somebody and pray for somebody and tone that we want them to get better, what we're doing is we're focusing our attention and energy on them, offering God and the world this new level of focus as a tool for renewed connection and integration. Prayer gives God the gifts of our intention, our energy, our hope to use to create deeper human belonging, greater engagement, and richer connection. In such a world, prayer for healing is meeting in a depth more resonant and aware than our normal consciousness, affirming that God knows each of us as we are, and that God eternally internalizes each instant as it becomes the present. The act of prayer is the word, deed, of meeting each other in God, in strengthening the link that connects us to our loved ones, to those far away, to communities in trouble and danger. In other words, prayer is a moment of meeting on an unconscious, cosmic, uh, um, uh, energy level. Right? When I bring the, um, the, the thought of someone who's needed healing to my mind, I bring it to the level of, uh, of consciousness in God. And I connect to an energy that is in them as well. And their energy then meets me in that moment. We focus the vibrations of our minds and hearts and direct, that, and direct that intention to God and through God toward the resilient, vibrating patterns of energy that are our loved ones, the objects of our concern. We strengthen the us-ness of them. Right? We bring ourselves to them. We infuse them with our energy. We lift them up, even if they are unaware of it. Right, on a broader cosmic level, on a, on a deep level of reality, our energy 
becomes infused in theirs. We give more of ourselves to them. We raise to explicit consciousness the vague concern for the other, and we sharpen that concern into praise, petition, and empathy. Perhaps such prayer can nudge the trajectory of disease. The scientific studies of such matters are ambivalent in their findings. Right? We, we don't know for a fact if uh, such an action will help a person get better. There is some evidence to suggest that when people know that you are praying for them, they tend to heal faster, better, have a higher likelihood of success in illnesses where success is a possibility where healing is a possibility physically. Um, there are studies that suggest that, and if that's so, that reinforces uh, this idea that, uh, that, that certainly for people who know that you're praying for them, um, that, uh, that, that energy helps them. That energy can give them hope. That energy can, can, can infuse them with a, with a, with a sense of, of, of purpose and connection. And we know that uh, uh, connected people, people who, um, who, who have uh, a sense that they have more to live for, um, uh, tend, although not always, unfortunately, um, tend to um, have uh, um, uh, um, uh, better rates of healing. And it's even true to a certain degree for people who don't know that we're praying for them. But the studies are ambivalent on this, and we certainly know many, many examples of people who have whole communities praying for them um, that don't get better. It's not diminishing that reality. Um, it's also not diminishing the reality that sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes the illness is so progressed, or so far along, or so deadly, that no amount of energy is going to help up uplift, maybe will prolong the person's life for a day. You know, a little bit longer than it would have, maybe. But prayer can speak to the depths of the sick, the struggling, the sad, affirming that they are not alone, not abandoned, and making it possible for us to meet them in God and mobilize untapped resources on their behalf, their own, ours, and God. At the very least, what that prayer does is it gives a person a little bit more hope. It gives a person a little bit more connection. It gives a person a little bit more of a sense that, you know, I may not make it through this, but at least I know I'm held. At least I know I'm loved. In a world where so little is certain, as Milton Steinberg said, that is a great deal. In such praying words, deeds, we not only offer our prayers as words and deeds, we become our prayers. I am my prayer. When we pray for someone else's healing, what we are doing is we become the prayer. We transform into that energy. We transform into that uplift. And in so doing, we can lift them up, even if only just a little bit. We can't change nature. We can't do the supernatural. Our prayer won't achieve the miraculous. But at the very least, it can elevate. It can energize. It can bring us into meeting with those 
who may be otherwise lost on different planes of being. And in that meeting, we can become more than we are, and they can become more than they are. Three different ways of understanding prayer. Three different elements of prayer that are uh, infused and emboldened, I think, with an understanding from process theology. And we appreciate uh, Rabbi Artson for putting out uh, this beautiful essay uh, to, uh, to uh, enlighten and inform us um, and uh, to provide us with more food for thought. Uh, have a happy new year, everybody. Um, I hope that the new secular year brings with it uh, uh, much health and much joy and many blessings for you and those you care about. See you in 2013.